Hi, I'm Jade Siri Ramos. I am the producer of A Public Affair. Did you know you can find our show anywhere you get podcasts? Just search A Public Affair wherever you like to listen, and you'll never miss an episode. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the Hello and welcome to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. My name is Nate Carlin and I'll be your host for this hour, subbing in for Alan Ruff. I'm here with guest Philip Rocco. He is an associate professor of political science at Marquette University who works on the various effects of federalism, including on the U.S. Census. Today, he is with us to talk about the swirl around redistricting and the gerrymander in Wisconsin. Phil, welcome to WRT. Good to be with you, Nate. So let's start uh, super zoomed out. What is redistricting? So every 10 years, uh, state governments... Uh, redraw the boundaries of the, their legislatures and of their congressional districts so that, uh, according to federal laws and judicial rulings, um, you have roughly the same number of people in, living in every state legislative and congressional district, and that the districts are sort of compact and contiguous, and they sort of look um, fair. Um, the So, that has to happen uh, every 10 years, uh, and states do it. And most of the states uh, in the country, uh, that process is done by the state legislature. And that's sort of where things get complicated because when there's not a nonpartisan process for doing that, there's always the possibility that states will draw uh, the lines of those legislative districts in a way that advantages the party that's currently uh, in power, uh, which is a uh, process that that for uh, two centuries we, we've called gerrymandering. Okay, and, and how common is gerrymandering as a problem? Um, it has, you know, a way come to um, head in recent years. I mean, gerrymandering has sort of gone on since before the United States was founded. Uh, the term refers to um, uh, Elbridge Gary, uh, who is a Massachusetts uh, state legislator, and uh, you know this goes back to the to the 18th century. But uh, gerrymandering has gotten, in a way, uh, worse in recent decades because the technology that uh, uh, legislators have to to draw maps is really sophisticated, and uh, legislatures can identify with with a great level of precision where the voters of their party are, where the voters of uh, their opposing party are. And um, uh, while there have been attempts to create nonpartisan redistricting commissions in a number of states, um, in states like Wisconsin, uh, gerrymandering is you know, quite uh, extreme. Uh, right now, the uh, state assembly map in Wisconsin, that's the lower chamber of the state legislature, um, it has a higher level of skew than 95% of the other redistricting plans that are in place around the country. And what that means is that even when Democrats win as much as 53% of the statewide vote, they uh, hold no more than 39 of the 99 assembly seats. So it's a, it's a pretty extreme uh, gerrymander in Wisconsin. Now, when you say the word skew, what what does that mean? Is that because um, you can't obviously change how people vote. So how, no, how do you skew um, the map? What you can do is change the way that the districts are composed. So if you have access to data on where Republican and Democratic voters are, you can redraw the lines of the districts such that every district still has the same population, but... Uh, Democrats are cracked into a large number of districts um, where they don't have the ability uh, to choose a Democratic um, uh, candidate uh, for office, and uh, that in some cases, Democrats are packed into a small number of districts where their preferred candidate wins overwhelmingly, but where their sort of votes are often in excess of the amount that that candidate needs to win. And so you can do this in such a way that overall, 
when you tally up um, districts across the state, it can make it really, really hard uh, for a party, even a party that wins a majority of the votes to not win a majority of the seats. Yeah, I, I want to drill down that a little bit because I, I feel like sometimes when we talk about gerrymander, we, we use these words like really, really hard. And I feel like it'd be more honest to say impossible, right? There's there's no, yes. polit- in our political reality, there is no way for the Democrats to win. Yeah, there's a, a researcher named Joey Chen at the University of Michigan, and he um, was trying to figure out whether or not, you know, the skew that we see in Wisconsin's legislative maps is just the result of geography. Because, of course, you know, we know that Democrats live packed into a smaller number of geographies. They tend to cluster in larger cities. Republicans are more spread out. And, you know, I think one thing that people often say is, well, that's not gerrymandering, right? It's just the result of political geography. And so what Joey Chen did was he ran a computer simulation drawing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of maps. Um, of the state of Wisconsin's legislative districts. And what he found was that uh, even when you take into consideration the natural geography of the state and where partisan supporters live, um, the maps that we have are an order of magnitude more extreme in how much um, uh, advantage they give to Republicans. And in, in such a way that it is basically impossible under the current maps uh, for Democrats to ever win um, a legislative majority, no matter how many votes they get, no matter how hard they work in an election to get those votes. And let's, let's drill down a little bit into Wisconsin handling redistricting, because you said that the legislature does it. What, what does that process look like? So in the state of Wisconsin, um, the state legislature, uh, you know, commissions uh, the the drawing of legislative maps. And uh, whereas in other states uh, where an independent redistricting commission that's made up of nonpartisan uh, experts would do it, that process in Wisconsin is overseen directly by the legislature. And so the legislature you know, proposes those maps, they vote on those maps, they send the maps to the governor and the governor can of course veto them. Uh, and when there's a dispute uh, over those maps, the, the contest goes to the Supreme Court. And uh, when, you know, historically, when the Supreme Court is in the hands of conservative justices, who even though they're not Republicans on the ballot and, you know, they, they don't run on a partisan ballot line, um, you know, there's a very clear partisan connection between those judges and, and the Republican Party, um, you know, the, those maps that the legislature draws, even when they get vetoed by the governor, the court has tended to um, endorse them. Now, what changed that is the election of Janet Protasiewicz in uh, this spring's judicial election, which flipped the balance of the court, which is to the extent that you're seeing redistricting in the news and gerrymandering in the news, it's because there's a new political reality where you have a different majority on the court and the possibility for uh, potentially an invalidation of the current maps uh, by that new majority. And so there's been a, a case that's filed by some voters in Wisconsin about the constitutionality uh, of those maps under the state constitution, and uh, that's proceeding uh, through uh, the courts now. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. My name is Nate Carlin, and today we're talking with Professor Philip Rocco about the state of the partisan gerrymander in Wisconsin. We'd like to hear what you think about fair maps. Please give us a call at 608-256-2001. Yeah, I definitely want to get to the Protosewich thing, because I think that's what everyone's talking about this week. But uh, I, I wanted to start, maybe go back a whole decade, because I feel like the story starts in 2010. What what happened in 2010 that changed gerrymandering? So in 2010, so to, to be clear, uh, every decade after the census is taken, state legislatures get new data about where people live. And because people uh, move around, the populations of the old districts aren't the same as they used to be. And so they have to draw new maps. Okay. And so in 2010, which was, by the way, a big wave election year for Republicans, Republicans across the country won 
uh, control of state legislatures and governorships, and Wisconsin got a uh, unified Republican government, Governor Scott Walker and, and Republican-controlled state legislature. That was part of a pretty strategic move by the Republican Party, something called Project Red Map, uh, in which they really put a lot of effort into those 2010 elections so that in 2011, when redistricting started to happen, they would have control of the, over the process in a lot of states. And so Wisconsin uh, Republicans drew uh, the maps uh, for the state legislature under something called Act 43. Um, they did it in a room, uh, a legislative map room, um, that only members of the majority party were allowed to access, um, and which we now have you know, evidence for, through federal court filings several years ago that shows that they tinkered around with a bunch of different maps and chose the maps that they knew would maximize the number of seats that they could hold on to under a variety of different conditions. So there's no question about whether or not you know, gerrymandering was like accidental or sort of like, oops, uh, you know, we didn't mean to do that. Um, they did mean to do it. And there's lots of emails and other kinds of documentation backing up that intentionality. And that those were the maps that really were some of the most extreme that we'd ever seen. And, the, you know, the maps that resulted in Democrats really not having a shot, even if they um, had a really good election year of taking back the state legislature. And so in 2021, when the new census data came out, um, you now had a, a Democratic governor um, in office who was, uh, you know, had his own uh, People's Maps Commission and, and had alternative proposals for the maps. Um, Republicans proposed theirs. The governor proposed his. He vetoed theirs. And the entire matter went before the straight state Supreme Court, which... Um, more or less upheld the uh, Republicans' uh, maps. And so that's sort of where we are today. And those maps are, you know, roughly the same uh, kind of gerrymanders that we had um, in in the decade between 2010 and 2020. Yeah. Can, can you give me a sense of how the scholarship has changed in the intervening decade? I feel like I was taught about gerrymandering prior to 2010 and it was always sort of presented as politicians draw the maps to be safe so that they don't have to worry about re-election. It's kind of like a handshake deal where everyone gets safe maps. And then I feel like in 2010, the, the idea of this partisan gerrymander, it, it really shifted. And those like North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, all had their maps uh, make national news <laughs> over, the, over the next couple of years. Can you give yeah. you a little sense of yeah how, how your field has responded to that? Well, I mean, it's let's let's take a few steps back. There's different kinds of gerrymandering out there in the world. Some of it, um, the federal courts have basically held as illegal, and some um, they have held as more or less uh, legal. And so, you know, for decades after the 1982 reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act, um, courts had held that racial gerrymandering or cracking and packing people along racial or ethnic lines um, to disadvantage them, that was illegal. The question was whether or not partisan gerrymandering was illegal. And in you know, a series of rulings in the early 2000s, the US Supreme Court had basically said, well, it's, it might be illegal but we don't know. Um, we don't have enough evidence to say, and and without a good measure of partisan gerrymandering, we don't want to wade into the political thicket of ruling on partisan gerrymandering. There's a case called Veith versus Jubileer, um, in which the just uh, sort of the controlling opinion was by Justice Anthony Kennedy basically said, "Look, we don't know what to do about this. We're not sure that we can wade in, but perhaps with better data, better analysis, more technology, we'll be able to see, you know, just how serious gerrymandering is and whether or not we can do anything about it. And that set off a kind of wave of scholarship among political scientists to say, how do we really measure systematically the strength of these different gerrymanders such that a court could look at all of the uh, legislative plans in the country and say, look, you know, these are not so bad and these are so odious. They're so 
um, extreme that we have no choice but to do something about it. And that um, resulted in some scholarship um, by a pair of legal scholars, um, uh, Nick Stephanopoulos uh, and Eric McGee, um, as well as a number of other scholars working in this area um, to produce a, a score, uh, which people call the efficiency gap, that kind of was a measure of, of how much, um, how extreme some of these maps were. And that was really what allowed um, voters in Wisconsin to challenge the maps that the legislature drew in 2011. And that came before um, uh, ultimately the, the U.S. Supreme Court in a case called uh, Gill v. Whitford. And the Supreme Court in that case and, and another case from North Carolina called Rucho, uh, the Supreme Court said, <clears throat> yeah, it doesn't really matter. You collected all of this data and there's still nothing we can really do about it. But your states, it's actually the state constitutions where you might be able to do something about this. And but it but we're washing our hands of it. And that's where I think you saw a lot of movement uh, in the last few years since 2018, when when um, uh, or 2019, when Rucho was was decided um, kind of where um a lot of the action has kind of moved to the states. You saw state Supreme Courts in states like Pennsylvania overruling uh, some gerrymanders that the state legislature had passed. And I think that's where you saw some of these challenges teed up again in Wisconsin, um, you know, in the last few years. And I think ultimately um, helps explain kind of where we are today, that the Supreme Court has basically washed its hands of it. And a lot of the action is going to depend on what the states do. Yeah, can you give me a sense of, uh, is Wisconsin in a unique predicament, or is this sort of a, a hill a lot of states have had to climb to, to deal with this? I, I wouldn't say that Wisconsin's predicament is unique. Um, the There's gerrymandering faced by, you know, um, when the, the shoe is on the other foot, so to speak. There are ger legislative gerrymanders in Illinois. There's legislative gerrymanders in Maryland, and both of those gerrymanders really disadvantage Republicans. Um, but they're not as extreme uh, in terms of the capacity of the party to win uh, back the control of the legislature as as what you see in Wisconsin. Um, it's pretty extreme. Um, it's hard to say, you know, how unique things are in Wisconsin, because I think gerrymandering has second order effects, too. Once a legislature has been gerrymandered for as long as ours has been and as extremely as it's been, I think it has a way of, um, and I'm speaking in a, in a little bit speculatively here, but um, uh, one thing we do know, and this isn't speculative, is that it does uh, reduce parties' incentives to compete in a, in a large number of districts, right? If districts are just obviously going to you know, be won, um, parties don't necessarily recruit and, and uh, send out you know, high-quality candidates in those districts because it's just not worth it. Um, and I think there, this is where it's speculative that there's a second order effect that, um, uh, when legislatures really can't be held accountable, it changes them. I mean, it changes the way that they act. It changes the way they think it changes the kinds of policies that they're um, willing to entertain. And I think what we've seen in Wisconsin, if, if it seems unique, uh, or in, in a kind of extreme direction, it's that, um, State legislative leaders um, who drew these maps, um, they feel they have I, they appear to um, feel that they can act with impunity um, and uh, take actions that are flying the face of what vast majorities of Wisconsinites want uh, because they know they're really never going to face punishment uh, for it. And the, the fact that now uh, with a different Supreme Court, there's the possibility uh, of that, I think that changes the dynamic. And I think what we're seeing is Republicans responding in kind. Well, it sounds like we have a caller on the line. Randy wants to ask about the difference between gerrymandering and rigging. Randy, you're on the air. Uh, thank you. Uh, well, first to, to riff on what uh, what you guys just said, uh, you know, I'm, I have a bad feeling that Alabama has now kind of set the template for uh, complete contempt of uh, uh, of upper court's orders on this. Uh, and I think uh, Wisconsin will soon follow suit. Um, my, 
my concern was uh, uh, might seem pretty minor, but uh, you said a while ago that uh, uh, you can't, you don't accidentally gerrymander a district. In other words, it's rigged, and that seems to be the crux of why they want to uh, impeach um, Judge Fortasiewicz. That uh, she she said rigged instead of gerrymandered, and I don't see a dime's worth of difference. Yeah, that's uh, a very good point. And in a way, um, gerrymandered uh, is just a a specific form of rigging. There's all kinds of ways of stacking the deck in your favor. Um, Some of those ways are really hard to adjudicate for courts, right? There are some things where it's just a sort of power play and courts can't easily adjudicate it. But with gerrymandering, it is something that, you know, as we've seen in other states, courts... um, develop um, bodies of law around, you know, what you're allowed to do when drawing districts and what you're not allowed to do. And I think this is something that voters um, was a real concern for them. And if you look at surveys of Wisconsin voters, um, they don't like gerrymandering. And and that's kind of true across parties. Um, And so it's not necessarily surprising that in an election where, uh, you know, you have judges running for office, they're talking about things that voters care about. Um, and, you know, I, I think that there's, we even have, you know, federal uh, uh, rulings from the Supreme Court that basically say that judges have First Amendment rights when they're in elections and that they can't be, you know, um, impeached for that that sort of thing. But that, um, you know, certainly Republicans now sort of facing the music or potentially facing the music um, I think uh, they have sort of doubled down, at least initially, um, you know, in support of uh, trying to impeach uh, Protosiewicz. So, I mean, I, I don't, anybody who thinks that the sort of political hardball um, is over in Wisconsin, I think that's probably, that's, you know, that might be a bit too optimistic. Yeah, since since our caller alluded to it, I wonder if you could touch a little bit on the Alabama case uh, and like how how does the Voting Rights Act fit into this puzzle? Yeah, I mean, so that's a it's sort of a it's a different the kind of gerrymandering that's going on there, and that um, the Supreme Court, you know, at least said um, you know was not allowed, and federal courts had to go back and, and draw different maps uh, was racial gerrymandering, right? And whether or not you you know, the, the number of congressional districts, you know, actually had to have a, um, uh, a district where black voters could elect a candidate of choice. Um, that is sort of a different body of law, um, uh, than we're dealing with in Wisconsin. We're dealing here in the, the case that's currently working its way through the state courts, a challenge under the state constitution, not the federal voting rights act. And it's a challenge to partisan gerrymandering, not, uh, as far as I know, racial gerrymandering. Um, the, but the, the question that the caller or the concern that the caller brings up, um, is a significant one, which is you had a federal court basically tell, um, the Alabama state legislature that the maps that it had drawn after the Supreme court had ruled, um, were still racially gerrymandered and the legislature basically said, uh, you know, uh, we're drawing them anyway. And there's a question about, um, you know, what you do uh, in those kinds of scenarios. And I think we're, you know, we, we should all, Wisconsinites should be watching what happens in Alabama uh, because it's, I think, a good example of what some of this um, kind of uh, institutional or constitutional hardball um, could uh, look like here. Today on Public Affair, our guest is Philip Rocco, a professor of political science at Marquette University. If you have any questions for our guest, please give us a call at 608-256-2001. We'd love to hear how you feel about the future of the partisan gerrymander. And yeah, I, I would love to hear. So there, there is the sense that previously uh, we have gone when Republic, Wisconsin Republicans have come up against judicial rulings, they've kind of gone to the u.s supreme court um and the u.s supreme court has more or less as you said washed their hands of this is that something you think is going to be a continuing problem for for dealing with this 
Well, it's interesting because in the Rucho case, um, this, you know, the federal Supreme Court's rationale for uh, punting on the issue uh, and kind of kicking it away was that they said, look, you've got other voters who are distressed by, you know, partisan gerrymandering. We can't do anything about it under our jurisprudence, but states can. And so I agree, it's not inconceivable that Republicans receiving a unfavorable ruling from the Wisconsin State Supreme Court uh, would try to, you know, press their case in the federal uh, judiciary. Um, but at least, you know, at least on paper, whether or not it holds in practice, uh, the Supreme Court's ruling in Rucho shouldn't give, you know, them much uh, support. But again, you know, there's um, one of the important things here is the clock. You know, the the particular rulings, the rationales, the legal justifications, I think to Republicans in Wisconsin, none of those things really matter. What matters is whether or not you're going to have new maps for the 2024 election. And even if the federal courts don't agree with them, um, it's good. It takes a long time for cases to percolate uh, through different um, levels of the state and federal judicial system. And it's September 14th, you know, um, the clock is ticking. And any, I think that in understanding Republicans' political strategy in Wisconsin, you have to think about them carefully watching the clock. They don't care what happens at the end of the day. They care what happens by the time that they actually would need to have uh, new maps would be very, very soon after the first of the year. Yeah, speaking of the clock, I, I think we probably should at least touch on happenings this week. So um, Voss, uh, Assembly Speaker Voss has floated a Iowa-style um, approach to, to redistricting. Can, can you give me a, what is the, what is the Iowa way? Well, there's the Iowa way, and then there's what was proposed this week. <laughs> so let me distinguish between those two things. So Iowa is a state that for years has been seen by advocates of nonpartisan redistricting as a model state, uh, because even though it's controlled by Republicans, uh, it, you know, and there's, you know, Republicans tend to win, that does sort of reflect Iowa's political geography. Um, the uh, redistricting process in Iowa is uh, works like this. There is a nonpartisan legislative services bureau, uh, which is staffed by civil servants, not politically appointed. They draw maps and they are not allowed to use partisanship in drawing the maps, right? Um, they propose a map to the state legislature. The state, state legislature can reject it, force them to go back to the drawing board. Then they can propose another one. And then the state legislature can reject that one. And then they can go back a third time. And the state legislature at that point can amend the map, but it requires more than a simple majority vote. It requ requires 75% of the legislative chamber's members uh, to vote on it. So for all practical purposes, that means that it's really, really hard for um, uh, the state legislature to reject a map that is drawn without consideration of partisanship in favor of one that is. And if they do uh, introduce partisanship into the calculation when they're making those maps, then the state Supreme Court there can review it. That's the Iowa model, okay? And advocates of redistricting reform in Wisconsin have for years pressed for Wisconsin to adopt that model. And on Monday, after years of not wanting to do that and never giving an indication that he wanted to do that, uh, Robin Voss, the state assembly speaker and a Republican, introduced something that he called an Iowa-style model. And if you look at it on its surface, it looks somewhat like what I just described as the Iowa model. You know, the Legislative Reference Bureau would draw maps and this, you know, legislature would then vote on them. And they sort of have three bites at the apple. There's one difference, though, which is that third map, the only map that the legislature itself can amend, um, 
is does not require a super majority does not require you know 75 percent of the legislature to pass it only requires a simple majority and there's also a little provision in there about how the process itself um, is not judicially enforceable and so those two little changes taken together don't seem significant but in reality what it means is uh the state legislature could reject um uh nonpartisan maps proposed by the Legislative Reference Bureau twice, um, then accept the third one and amend it, include it to include partisan factors, reenacting the gerrymander, and with a simple majority of both chambers of the legislature, they could enact that gerrymandered map. So, in, and the governor could, of course, veto it, um, but and, and, you know, might at that point go to the Supreme Court. But it is really, once you think about that part of the process, it's different from the current process we have in Wisconsin, only um, facially, only at a, at a really surface level. Uh, because in reality, there would be very little from pre uh, preventing um, the, the legislature from enacting amended maps that have partisan gerrymanders in them. Yeah, it does seem like it gets at kind of the, the conundrum of gerrymandering, which is you can't trust the legislature to ungerrymander themselves because they exist because of the gerrymander. Well, right. And I, and I think the thing is, the reason why voters um, uh, and redistricting advocates have pressed for the Iowa model in Wisconsin is that our state, legis our state constitution requires the legislature to be involved in redistricting. And so you could, of course, change the Constitution and move it to a, a nonpartisan redistricting commission, but that means changing the Constitution. That's kind of politically, that's a heavier lift. And so the Iowa model has been seen as kind of the alternative. But the reality is um, that what has been proposed is not really the Iowa model because it doesn't really bind the legislature in any way to nonpartisan maps. Um, and the question you have to ask yourself is why, after years of not, um, you know, being interested at all in nonpartisan redistricting and more or less admitting that the state's maps were drawn with an eye towards partisan um, advantage, uh, does the Speaker of the State Assembly now, on a Monday, propose a, a bill that is now going to be voted on today, Thursday, September 14th, in the State Assembly with no hearings? What is that about? And it doesn't really reflect a, shall we say, a change of heart um, about the uh, conditions under which the state redistricts itself. So, so what, what would the timeline look like? Because it does feel like he's trying to sneak one in under the buzzer. But what is the buzzer in this world? I mean, I think for all practical purposes, the, there's, there's uh, two reasons to introduce that bill now in the way that the speaker has one is to sort of take some attention off of the impeachment fight um uh and the fact is uh the propose you know what what voss is proposing and still talking about is you know in, uh you know introducing measures to impeach um uh janet prudisiewicz if she doesn't recuse herself from the redistricting case um, but that's actually run aground, at least with some members of uh, the majority party, have said that that's, that's sort of beyond the pale for them. Um, and uh, so after some blowback from that, this is sort of takes the attention off of it. I think it's also possible that the process now is uh, trying to introduce a new piece of legislation. Um, the you know, might be one way that, that Voss and Assembly Republicans try to stop the lawsuit uh, against their uh, 2021 redistricting plan from going forward by saying, look, the case isn't ripe. We're trying to do something about this. The courts don't have a role to play here. But I, you know, whether or not that argument flies in court is, is a completely different question. And I'm not a lawyer, I'm, pol I'm a political scientist. Um, but it does seem like the the hope is to kind of stop um, any kind of new judicially approved map from from going into a place um, anytime soon. And I think the 
I think, you know, early spring is when new maps would have to be um, approved. Um, don't don't quote me on that, but it seems like that's the timeline that we're working on is at the very least much less than a year um, for 2024 anyway. And, um, you know, the, uh, I you know, that's, I think, the light in which we should interpret all of these actions. And so... Uh... Where you you sort of alluded to Iowa being a model uh, place that people are turning and the problems of the Wisconsin Constitution kind of running afoul of this. What 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 in particular in the Wisconsin Constitution um, applies here? Well, I think the point, the thing that makes the two states similar enough, and why redistricting advocates have pushed for an Iowa, you know, capital I Iowa style plan, uh, as opposed to the one that is currently being proposed by Voss um, is because the state constitution requires the legislature to be the key actor in redistricting. And in order to change that, um, uh, you'd have to go to, um, you know, you'd have to go back to voters with a referendum and, and approve a change to the constitution. And that takes a long time. In Wisconsin, it's not like other states. You know, Michigan, for example, uh, voters went to the ballot box and, through a voter-approved initiative, uh, set up a new redistricting process with a nonpartisan redistricting commission, which I think has been regarded to be very successful. Um, but it's not like we don't have a voter initiative process. You can't put thing. Voters can't put legislation on the ballot. We can vote on referenda that are sent us from the state legislature uh, and in some cases from local governments, but, uh, but the, we, we don't have the same sort of constitutional setup. So uh, to rewind, I mean, that's sort of why uh, redistricting advocates for so many years pushed for the Iowa model because it was essentially much less heavy a lift politically to do. Um, and it seemed to generate positive results um, in the state of Iowa, which is not regarded by anyone um, to have especially skewed maps. Um, but uh, Voss is very, I think, clever in the way that he introduces, like, this is an Iowa-style plan. And then you sort of look at the details. It's like, well, there's a giant Wisconsin-sized escape hatch uh, in the plan that allows uh, the legislature to kind of nullify the nonpartisan plans that it has sent. And it can sort of ratify them without having a supermajority of voters in support of that third amended plan. So can you give me a sense, <clears throat> excuse me, if uh, the Supreme Court moves forward and rejects the maps that the legislature has put forward, uh, what happens next? Well, the it is, you know, that is where it's conceivable that uh, the legislature would try to punt the issue to the federal courts, but uh, I mean, otherwise the, you know, the state approved plans, uh, the, the court approved plans would, um, you know, go into place. Those would become the new districts. Um, and there would be a, uh, you know, a requirement that the state um, uh, implement those. Now, of course, it is, it is very hard to say in a world of, uh, sort of political hardball, exactly how resistance to that ruling would manifest itself. I, you know, couldn't sit here with a straight face and tell you exactly what that would look like. But I do think um, it's, people should be aware that it that could happen. Like, we're not in a world where it's reasonable to believe that the assembly speaker and the leadership of the Republican Party in the state would, you know, concede uh, on these things. And it's, I mean, it's a very strange place because in the world of American politics, we are, we are um, I think, conditioned to believe that, yeah, there might be some, uh, shall we say, tinkering around the edges or, you know, clever legislative moves uh, to skirt the implementation of, you know, you know, judicially enforceable rulings and things like that. But at the end of the day, it's hard to just, um, you know, stand athwart a very clear judicial command uh, and say no way. 
but I think we're in a slightly different world. And it's, it's not sort of surprising to me that I have, uh, let's just say a lot more interesting conversations with my colleagues who study um, countries like Hungary um, than I ever thought I would, you know, a decade ago when I was in graduate school. Well, if you're just joining us, we're talking today with Philip Rocco, a professor of political science at Marquette University. He works on policies surrounding federalism and the differences between states. If you have any questions for our guest or comments about the gerrymander in Wisconsin, give us a call at 608-256-2001. We'd love to hear from you. And yeah, uh, I, I want to build on that comment because you have a couple times alluded to political hardball and, the, and that as sort of running parallel with the gerrymander. Uh, what, what do you see in terms of, yeah, state coordination across states in, in political strategy here? Well, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, to the extent that we saw a coordination um, across state legislatures um, on redistricting strategy, the um, 2010 was a really signal year. It should have changed the way that we think about states. Um, we tend to describe states um, and indeed political scientists often study states as if they're all like little individual countries. And, uh, you know, we, we have a data set and we have like 50 states in that data set and we treat them kind of independently, right? But that's not really how they are. They're part of the fabric of our federal system. And they play, without the states, we wouldn't, you know, redistrict Congress. The states are the agents of uh, redistricting Congress, states shape um, election laws, which affect who votes in federal elections. They're part of this seamless fabric. And I think in 2010, when Project Red Map happened, uh, this effort to coordinate um, uh, campaign contributions around this idea that after 2010, there was going to be this huge chance to redistrict um, and to kind of lock in Republican power for a decade, um, that really illustrates very nicely that the states are actually part of this much bigger national um, government. And I think one reason why there's so much attention on Wisconsin now um, is that it is a pivotal state in close presidential elections. Um, and, you know, the outcome of the presidential election in one state in a very close election could be very, very decisive in the national outcome of that contest. And who controls the state legislature and who gets to decide state election laws and all the rest of it um, is very consequential. And so it's not surprising to me that there's so much attention at, on uh you know, a springtime nonpartisan election, like the judicial election was like the most expensive judicial election in American history, uh, even after adjusting for inflation, I think um, that's significant, right? That doesn't happen in the absence of people outside of Wisconsin understanding just how important Wisconsin is. Yeah, can you give me a sense? Yeah, when I think of federalism as it was presented to me, it was always as these laboratories of democracy, uh, every state is is looking at other states, taking their good ideas and, and tweaking them, and, and it's this wonderful way of of generating policy. And, and now I'm wondering what what is bubbling up from the laboratory. Mentioned federalism and not falling asleep, which is <laughs> you know I think I mean, my uh, I think the initial impression most people will hear that word and just their eyes glaze over immediately. But I think for me, the it's the laboratory's metaphor that is really the wrong thing. You know, we're not dealing with independent laboratories. Metaphors relies on the idea that states are really independent from one another. And to some extent they are. And, you know, there are innovations, things that states do that are unique and catch on and so forth. That's not wrong. But they also play this other role. Um, and if you read, take a look at the, you know, provisions of the Constitution that are about Congress, um, that is really where you see uh, the power of states and, and the presidency as well. Um, they're part of the architecture of national government. 
And it, so it's not just significant um, that, you know, states have a huge role to play in things that I would call formative policies, things like education, right, which, which has a huge impact on uh, people's political socialization, K-12 education. So states really constitute national democracy in that way through shaping what people know about the world and how they understand what a good system of government is. But I think even more importantly, states like create the DNA of uh, the you know federal democracy in the United States very large. And you know, to the extent that we're dealing with very close election contests, um, it's one reason why I think it is trivial to say that you can understand what's going on in American politics without understanding what's happening on the shores of Lake Mendota and Lake Monona. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me, building that on that a little bit, the 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 way that Wisconsin's kind of in the crosshairs of um, political manipulation, shall I say, is it kind of the canary in the coal mine for more, more serious political hardball? Is, is this something where this is the state where people trot things out and, and see what sticks? I don't know that we need canaries in a coal mine anymore. We sort of have a flock of birds, do we not? I mean, that's <laughs> sort of my, you know, if we're thinking about national, but uh, national government, but you, you know, I think, um, it just, Wisconsin's not the only pivotal state, right? Um, there are others. Um, Pennsylvania's especially important. Um, I th it used to be the case that Florida was that, um, and 2000 was sort of the evidence of that. But Florida's changed. Its, its political demography has changed a great deal, and so it's no longer that significant. Um, but Wisconsin really does you know, constitute a one of a very small handful of states that has a very pivotal role because it is so split down the middle. There's a lot up for contests, which is why you don't, you know, you don't see these sorts of um, uh, uh, efforts, you know, to to undermine sort of basic principles of the rule of law at the state level, say in in um, you know Iowa to the same extent. I mean, it's a more solidly Republican uh, state, or has become so. Indiana and so forth. Um, but you do see them here. And I think that's in part because just how much is up for grabs because just of just how uh, evenly divided, let's say, along partisan lines, the electorate uh, is. And when we talk about those partisan lines, one of the things that I hear about when we talk about the gerrymander is that you you stop fearing as a politician you you stop fearing the other party and you start feeling fearing being primaried. Um, yes. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? What what is that true? Well, yes. I mean, I think um, you know I'm not going to cite you chapter and verse uh, you know data and studies on this, but I think it's um, really evident that if the real competition and look you know we can. We can, we have prima facie evidence of this. Am I allowed to say prima facie? On uh, you got to define it. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we have prima facie evidence of this um, in uh, in local governments with with really safe, you know, seats uh, for one party. Like most of the action is kind of within, you know, uh, the party um, or within, you know, people who are associated with a particular party. Um, at the primary stage. And yeah, it's not surprising to me that, you know, the real action in a lot of Republican races in, in the state or Democratic races to some extent, too, is is in the primary and the, the, the uh, general election is not especially interesting. Um, uh, so that's, you know, I, I think that that is, uh, you know, when you, if the, that can happen because the seat is safe because of the political geography, of course, um, you know, uh, like there's not a lot of interesting Democrat versus Republican races in Vermont. Okay. Uh, at least in the state legislature, governor is a bit more interesting. Um, but the, uh, but it, I think it also happens. And I think you can see it in Wisconsin when you've drawn the seats to be safe and that's the world that we're in. Yeah. I, I want to drill down that a little bit. Cause I, I feel like there's a, a sense that, 
people are frustrated with the lack of moderates. They're frustrated with how partisan things have become. They're frustrated with uh, ex- extreme partisan um, manipulations and maneuverings. And I-, I guess I just want to know, how much of that do you ascribe to the gerrymander? Oh, I don't think that that um, was a you know product of the gerrymander per se. I think that that is a thing that's been... Um, at least a stated uh, concern of voters for some time. Um, the, you know, I, I think that the, um, the gerrymander, if it, if it's created, I think a political consciousness consciousness among voters, it's maybe an intensification of that, but also a sense in some places that, uh, you know, you know what, uh, what exactly do we do? There's, there's. There are cases where I think talking to voters, um, it can be the kind of thing that uh, people can feel motivated to give up on politics because it doesn't seem like anything matters, Um, at least when they're only thinking about narrow kind of electoral outcomes. Um, I do think that that's, you know, um, gerrymandering can intensify that. Um, And I do think that's, you know, dangerous. All right. Well, we just have a little bit of time left here, but I, I want to get your thoughts on if you could peer into the crystal ball and guess where we are a year from now, wh- what do you think you would see? Oh, I, <laughs> I try to avoid uh, prediction, you know, <laughs> Fair enough. Um, probably safe bet. <laughs> I do. Th- I do think, I do think that we're going to, you know, continue to see contestation over, over redistricting. I don't think that that's gone away. And I, I think that even though this Iowa style, so-called Iowa style plan is being presented as a sort of compromise. I don't think that that really is, I mean, uh, at least in its present form is especially viable as that. Um, And I have not seen any indications that Republican leaders are eager to relinquish the great advantages that the current legislative maps give them. Uh, I could be moved on that. Like there might be some evidence that would persuade me. Um, but, uh, but I haven't seen any yet. All right. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thanks so much to professor Philip Rocco for sitting down and talking with us. Thank you. Thank you as well to our producer, Jade and our sound engineer, Jack. You've been listening to a public affair on 89.9 W O R T FM Madison. Thanks to everybody. 